Amen. All right. Hey, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love you, and we are just so grateful to be gathered here as your church and your house to worship you, to sing and to pray and to uh, celebrate the gospel, and now to look to your word. Uh, Father, we come just humble. We come just dependent and needy and looking to you. Lord, would you teach us this morning? By your spirit, would you come and open our eyes, help us to see and read and understand your word and apply it to our lives? Father, would you have your way in this place? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. And once again, welcome to FBC. We're glad that you are here. My name is Matt, and I'm a pastor here, and we are just glad that you are with us. I want to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open it there. Acts chapter 4, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the seats in front of you, or we'll have the words on the screen as well. Um, it's good to be back with you preaching. It was great to have Pastor Scott Henning in the house last week, bringing the good word from Acts chapter 4. Such an encouraging message, and so, so sweet always to see Scott and Christy, uh, but I'm excited to be with you, continuing uh, where we left off, right? Mostly, uh, Pastor Scott stopped at verse 2, um, and so we're going to be starting with verse 3, and continue preaching through chapter 4 of the book of Acts, uh, and this morning we're looking at just the cheery, heartwarming, encouraging topic of followers of Jesus going to prison. <laughs> Everybody say, whoo! All right. Um, really, say with me, the, the book of Acts, it's this uh, historical document written by the first century doctor, physician named Luke, same man who wrote the gospel of Luke. And he's chronicling uh, the, the true story, the real events of the birth and, and growth of this movement we call the church. This movement we call Christianity. And we see how the church started. Uh, we see the message of the church, the good news of Jesus Christ at the heart of it. Uh, we, we see how it explodes out onto the scene in the ancient world as lives and communities are transformed, as churches are planted. And we see some really exciting things as we read. We see uh, healings. We see miracles. We see bold preaching. We see the Holy Spirit falling on the apostles and filling the church of God for the work of God. We see this global mission to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers they will be his witnesses. It's exciting stuff. But we also see as we go... Uh, that it's not all smooth sailing and exciting for followers of Jesus. We actually see that following Jesus should come with a warning label or a, a, a risk assessment waiver that you sign when you sign up for a life walking with Jesus. Sort of a full disclosure, uh, here's the risks involved and what you're getting into as you follow Jesus. Most of us have a sense of this. Right, That as you commit to Christ and walk with him, it, it puts you in different ways out of step with the ways and the values of the world. Right, As you're a follower of Jesus, there are now uh, conflicting values between what you hold and the scriptures teach and uh, the world. 
You see that there's a, a conflict of allegiances where we declare we are following Jesus. He alone is our king. We surrender to him and live uh, his way. And yet the world wants to continually tell us to bow to, to another king, to, to, to walk to the beat of another drum. And in some way, there's no avoiding that as a follower of Jesus. Now, let's be honest. Some of that tension is, is our fault. Sometimes we bring that upon ourselves where we are, are rude to people and then there's conflict and then we blame it on Jesus. You know, like, they don't like me because I'm a Christian. It's like, no, they don't like you because you're just a, a rude human being and need to learn how to love people well. Don't blame it on Jesus. But there are other times where it's just unavoidable. We're following Jesus. We're loving people to the best of our ability. We're walking in line with the scriptures. And yet there's still tension and opposition simply because we are walking with Jesus. It inherently will bring tension. So look with me. You see it in the text. Verse 3 is where we started. Acts chapter 4, verse 3. It says, they seized Peter and John because it was evening. And they put them in jail to the next day. Pretty clear opposition, right? Peter and John are thrown in jail for the night. Remember how we got here, Acts chapter 3, uh, a man was at the temple who was lame from birth. His feet and legs had never developed properly, so he couldn't walk. He was begging for money, asking for generosity when he encountered the apostles Peter and John on their way to pray. And Peter and John didn't give money, but they said, here's what we can give you, a healing in the name of Jesus. And the man is miraculously healed, and he starts you know, going track star, running around the temple courts, uh, celebrating, leaping. The crowd there sees this. They're like, what in the world is going on? And so they gather around the apostles. They want to know how this happened. They want to know the explanation and so Peter gets up and delivers this, this powerful message. Hey, don't look at us, right? It's not about us and our power or our piety that healed this man. No, this is about the work of God in our midst. And it's, uh, he's been healed in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's preaching this powerful message. But then we saw last week, right, that the, uh, the temple authorities were not too pleased with this whole scene, the healing and the crowd and the, the preaching of the resurrection. And so the temple security and the priests and the Sadducees are agitated and angry. Verse 2 told us why. <clears throat> Again, this is from last week. It said they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So first again, the, the apostles were out of their jurisdiction, so to speak. They're, they're preaching Jesus in the temple courts. They're not, you know, certified, authorized uh, clergy. And so the leaders there are, are angry and disturbed. Not only that, but they're preaching the resurrection, which would greatly trouble and disturb the leaders and threaten them. And the result is they're, they're put in jail. Hey, you guys get a trial in the morning once the council has had all a uh, good night's sleep. But for now, have a good night in prison. And they join a distinguished list of God's people who have gone to prison or had trouble with the law. Off the top of our head, we can think of a few, right? We think of Joseph in Egypt. We think of Daniel in Babylon, the book of Daniel tells us. His prison had lions. Nice amenity. 
Um, we think of the prophets or, or John the Baptist who had trouble with the law and those in power. And now we have Peter and John because they were teaching people about Jesus. Now, the opposition ramps up, right? They're in jail, great. The next day, look at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Okay, so picture the scene. The next day, after a night in prison, probably wasn't too comfortable, I would imagine, they are brought before this group of leaders. Pretty much all the key leaders, the, the top brass of the land gather, and they place Peter and John before them for questioning. I mean, think about the mounting pressure that they could be feeling in this moment. The Sanhedrin, the, the high court of Israel, of Jerusalem there, gathered in kind of a half circle with them placed right in the middle being grilled. Again, just to paint the picture, think about who's there. The text tells us in verse 5, the rulers were there, kind of a general term referring to leaders, likely representatives of the priestly class were there. Uh, the elders, it says, were there. So, so senior officials, uh, leaders of the community, members of the Jewish elite they were wealthy, most likely. They were influential. Then it says the teachers of the law were there, or, or the scribes. Uh, they were uh, men who studied the law of Moses. They, they knew it forwards and backwards. They were basically the lawyers of their day. Verse 6, Annas, uh, who is the former high, high priest, still holds a title there, you see. But Caiaphas, the current high priest, was there, verse 6 says, and other members of the priest, fa priestly family. All these leaders gathered, staring at them, placing them before them for questioning. There's parallels here to when Jesus was brought before the same council months earlier when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the high court, before he was crucified, where he was condemned by them. And so Peter and John are standing there in their midst. Verse 7, brought in for questioning. They're, they're on trial. And this isn't just like a one-off thing. Uh, this is actually the first of 13 trial scenes that we're going to see in the book of Acts. Not just a one-time thing. Uh, it's kind of the beginning of a trend where the apostles, followers of Jesus, were getting in trouble with the law, deemed by one commentator as now criminal disciples. All because what? They healed a man. They gave this tremendous act of kindness, and they were teaching people about Jesus. So first takeaway from the text Following Jesus brings opposition. Following Jesus brings opposition. We see that for the apostles here, again, there's this, this warning label that should come with walking with Jesus. There's this awareness we should have of what we're signing up for as the apostles are really ruffling the feathers 
of the leaders of their day, of the, the Jewish authorities. So this opposition here is religious in nature. Right? It's, it's the, the Jewish authorities. It's the Jewish high court. It's the, the men who, who knew the scriptures, or so they thought. Men who were, were outraged because Jesus claimed to be God himself in the flesh. They were outraged because of the claim of the resurrection when the Sadducees, those in power, didn't believe in the resurrection. And so it was messing with their understanding of Scripture. Jesus came along and, and showed them that they thought they knew the Scriptures, but they had been misreading and misunderstanding the Scriptures and the heart of God. And so Jesus and the apostles come along, and they don't say, realize, they don't say, hey, this whole like, Old Testament thing, this whole scripture thing, this whole religion thing, let's just move away from that into something really loosey-goosey and free-flowing. No, they say, hey, don't you see what the scriptures have been pointing to all along? They uphold uh, the value and, and the meaning of scripture, saying if you would read it rightly and understand it correctly, the heart of God is on display all the Old Testament is being fulfilled. So it's about uh, not uh, religion versus anti-religion, but it's uh, false religion versus true religion. But they face religious opposition. Now, sometimes we face opposition that is not religious in nature, but it's simply from, from the world. Or it's because we are followers of Jesus, and some people are not. And therefore, there's animosity towards the church. I mean, you don't have to look very far today to find those who think following Jesus is foolish or dangerous for society uh, or something that you shouldn't be doing or, or the ways of the kingdom are irrational. Right? Maybe there's someone like that in your family and they let you know about it or in your neighborhood and they let you know about it or in your workplace and they let you know about it. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe even they ridicule you for your commitment to Christ. And I would argue that if, if we're not facing some kind of opposition, either of religious nature or from the world, um, we probably need to take a closer look at our discipleship to Jesus. Because it seems like inevitably when you read through the New Testament, you see the basic commitment to Christ and his ways and his kingdom is going to ruffle feathers one way or another. And so if we're going through life and it's just like smooth sailing and, and there, there's no tension anywhere with anyone and we just feel really comfortable and at ease in the world. Right, maybe we just embrace all the talking points of our political party of choice, whether it's right or left, and we feel real comfortable there, right at ease. That might be an indication that something in our discipleship to Jesus is off, because following Jesus is going to bring opposition. And I think one of the best ways to deal with this opposition is simply first to notice it, to expect it, Right? As you read through the New Testament, you just see it's there. You read in Acts chapter 4, they're going to jail, they're confronted, they're, they're on trial, so that we're not surprised by it. I mean, expectations are everything, right? 
expectations are everything. If, if you know a hard time is ahead, but you know up front that a hard time is coming, and you're told on the front end, hey, this is going to be hard, it, it's, it's a lot easier to, to navigate it, right? Whereas if you get into something, and you thought it was going to be easy, smooth sailing, and it turns out to be difficult, that can be rather disorienting. And you're like, wait a second, is something going wrong? Right? It wasn't supposed to be like this. But if you know up front, no, it's going to be hard. This comes with the territory. It's a lot easier to navigate. One comparison could be uh, to marriage or uh, premarital counseling. So when I do premarital counseling and work with couples that are getting ready to get married, there's some assessments involved with that, some things that tests that they take, things that they read to try and uh, help them prepare for marriage. And these assessments will look at topics like, hey, what are their communication styles and uh, how do they view and handle money? What was their family of origin like, right? What are they uh, kind of getting themselves into together? What are they, what's their stress level or current stressors in their lives? And how does that affect the relationship? Looking at signs of commitment and their commitment level naturally. Uh, but also the assessments that we use, um, there's a, a scale on it that measures what they call idealistic distortion, and so they try to measure in premarital counseling the, the level of idealistic distortion that the couple has. Trying to say, hey, is there too much idealism here where, where the couple, the, the husband or the wife, uh, are looking at things saying, no, this is going to be smooth sailing all the way, rose-colored glasses. If that's there, we want to catch it quick early on to, to shape expectations more appropriately. So, like, examples of idealistic distortion, they give some statements, you know, in the assessment. They say, do you agree or disagree or strongly agree or whatever with these statements? And there will be statements like, um, I expect my spouse to give me everything I need and meet all my needs. Or, I know, yeah. <laughs> or, uh, here's a good one. I expect that most of our difficulties will fade after we get married. We're just going to get married. There's all, problems going to go away. It's just going to be smooth sailing. Um, uh, the other one, uh, again, we'll, we'll never have serious problems in our marriage, right? You see, see the theme. If people agree with that or strongly agree with that, it triggers something in the assessment to say, hold on, red flag, wait a second. We need to talk about that, right? We want to catch that early so that going in, expectations are clear. Here's what you're getting into. And hey, marriage, again, uh, Marriage is a blessing, a gift to be cherished, held in high regard, absolutely. But along the way, there's going to be challenges. And we need to know that going in, right? Hey, prepare difficulties. So that when difficulties come, that you're not surprised or disoriented. Hey, this is part of it, and we work through it. And so with following Jesus, we need to expect opposition. So following Jesus brings opposition, but also look at the text. Look at verse 4. What else is going on here? Uh, verse 4, excuse me, verse 3. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Great. Verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So there's opposition. But there is great kingdom impact. Verse 4, many who heard the message that day believed. The church grew by thousands. The apostles were imprisoned, but the gospel was unchained. It's another one of those progress reports we see in the book of Acts, where Luke tells us how things are going and uses statements like this. Believers were added to their number 
the number of men who believed grew. The word of God went forth. Things like that we see. It's just a reminder of the work of God in the midst of great challenge and struggle and persecution. The gospel goes forth by the work of the Spirit. The gospel advances despite opposition. God does all that he pleases. His kingdom cannot be stopped. And so what an encouraging thing to see these truths back to back. Verse 3, the apostles are in jail. But hey, by the way, verse 4, the word of God is going forth and more and more people are being saved. So remember this then. Don't judge the impact of your life in ministry based on what you can immediately see. Let me say that again. Don't judge the impact of your life in ministry based on what you immediately see. Because I think of Peter and John in this moment. All this ruckus in the temple the healing, the preaching, the crowd, the arrest, uh, all this activity in the temple, and now they're in jail. And they probably don't know about this great impact. They probably don't know that night in jail about the results of thousands coming to faith in Jesus. They probably don't know the impact their preaching and ministry had so they're sitting in jail that night, and, and the text doesn't tell us what was going through their minds. We don't know for sure, but here's what would be going through my mind. I would be thinking things like, Lord, did I, did I do something wrong? Lord, did I, did I say the right thing? Should I have said this instead of that? Should I have been more tactful or more reserved or more bold in different ways? God, are you, are you even using me? Is there going to be fruit that comes from this? God, would you rather use someone else? Because I'm, I'm here in a, a prison cell, and so it looks like, you know, I'm not really doing much for the kingdom. So maybe you want to raise up another apostle, and you can use them. Awesome. Whatever you want, Lord. I just don't know if, if any fruit is coming from my life or my ministry or the things that I'm saying. I mean, look at where I am. And yet, there was great impact. Thousands coming to faith in Jesus. And so some of us, like the apostles, are, are sowing seeds, planting seeds, watering seeds, sharing the gospel, loving people, loving our neighbors, inviting people to church, inviting people to small or community group, inviting people to, to read the scriptures with us, initiating spiritual conversations the best we can, and sometimes it just feels like there's no fruit. And it feels like Nothing's happening with it, and our prayers aren't being answered, or, or the way we're doing it, is, it must not be working because we don't see the results. Again, don't judge the impact of your life and ministry based on what you can immediately see. Because God is often working, always working in countless ways that we cannot see. And sometimes it takes months or years or decades even to see the fruit of our labor. We have to trust that God is at work. We plant, we water, God will give growth. 
And so it's encouraging for us to see this example in verse 3 and 4. It's encouraging for us personally in how God wants to use us. It's also encouraging when we think about globally, like think about the global church, not just about you, but about the church, capital C at large in the world. Because back in 2021, there was some, some data compiled about the persecuted church in, in the modern day. And this data was shared, this research was shared, um, and they found things like this. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, Christians are unjustly, or excuse me, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Now, it's hard for us to make sense of this because that's so removed from our experience here in the West, right? We don't face persecution like this. And yet, this is the reality for, for so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The study showed that, that some of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian were North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Lib Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India. And, and the reasons listed for some of those were uh, one, Islamic oppression, pretty prevalent throughout the world, um, clan oppression, or like tribal persecution uh, from, you know, local tribes, um, persecution by dictators or governments, like official, you know, government sanctions against the church, that sort of thing. And so as you read through this, it's pretty discouraging and challenging, I would say, at first, but then the, the, the president and CEO of Open Doors USA, who, again, they're the ones who did the research and, and published this, uh, he said this about it. He said, you might think this list, again, the list of persecution and places that are dangerous, is all about oppression, but the list is really all about resilience. Again, you might read that and think, this is all about oppression, but, but the list is really all about Resilience, And he goes on to say this. He says, the numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are going to keep quiet or lose their faith or, or turn away from one another. But that's not what's happening, he says. He says, instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. encouraging, right? All, all, this, all this oppression we would think would lead to the death of the church. And people saying, there's no way this is worth it. And I'm not doing this whole Jesus thing, because look what it could mean. And yet our brothers and sisters all throughout the world are so compelled by this, this, this transformation they've experienced uh, from Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive and real. They say, I, I have to continue following him. Where else can I go? Where else can I turn? And their commitment to him is, is resilient. It displays the power of God. The, the, the kingdom of God will not be stopped. God will accomplish his will and his purposes. And that's the history of the church, not just in our modern day, but you look throughout the centuries and you read church history and you see opposition and persecution and the church continues to flourish and the gospel continues to go forth and the message of Jesus goes out and people are saved and lives are transformed, and eternities are changed. And so, yes, there's opposition in the book of Acts in following Jesus. 
But there's great impact. Look with me back at the trial now. Verse 7. Again, they had Peter and John brought before them and began questioning them. By what power or what name did you do this? Pause for a moment to consider how they might respond. It's our friend Peter, right? We spent a lot of time with Peter lately in Acts, in the Gospel of John. Good old Peter. Uh, Think about Peter, think about the last time Peter was on trial. It was a slightly less official trial. He was sitting around the fire with a few people. One of them was a, a young servant girl. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus was arrested. Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Peter was hanging out outside. And it was there that he was asked, aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus? And he said no. He was so afraid that he denied even knowing Jesus three times. And now he's on trial again. A much different kind of trial. The pressure's turned up significantly, wouldn't you say? From a servant girl and a few randos to uh, the highest court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, which could be up to 71 of the elders and leaders of the land there, pressuring them. Every influential authority there. And notice his response. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You say, well done, Brother Peter. Right? Here is no, I don't know him. No, I swear I don't know him. Well, I have nothing to do with that. No, we see this this bold declaration, no backing down. You guys want to know the answer? Let it be known. Here it is. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you healed. So why the change? I mean, what's, what's the difference between the end of the Gospels where he's scared before a a young servant girl saying, no, I don't know him, to hear boldly in front of the Sanhedrin saying, yep, I'm with this Jesus. What led to the change? I mean, the text tells us, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God enables him, strengthens him, moves him forward in boldness. In these circumstances, he's not relying on himself and looking to himself and his own strength or creativity or wit. He's not just thinking about himself and his own fears and his anxiety. No, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The very power and presence of God is with him there. The same Holy Spirit that dwells within you if you're a believer. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and declares this bold message of the gospel. He's not relying on himself. He's relying on the power of God. Now, there's this phrase that kind of floats around the church sometimes that goes something like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've heard that one. 
God won't give you more than you can handle. You're going through a tough time. Don't worry. You're strong. God won't give you more than you can handle. You got this. Hang in there. And I think often the heart of that is, is good or encouraging, right? Wanting to be helpful and encourage people to hang in there. But that statement, God won't give you more than you can handle, is not a true statement. God often gives us more than we can handle. Often, intentionally, gives us more than we can handle. Think, think with me about um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writing there, talking about his struggles in ministry. Here's what he says to the church. He's saying, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Again, far beyond our ability to endure. Again, translation, much more than we can handle. So that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, here it is, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We were under great pressure, he says. Far beyond our ability, way more than we could handle. So overwhelming even, he says, that we despaired of life itself. Despaired of life. We thought death would be a better option. Things were so hard, we'd rather die than go through whatever trial they were facing. And yet, he says, this, this happened, though. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. God brought this upon us so that we would learn not to rely on ourselves, so that we would reach the end of ourselves and be forced to rely on the Lord. Now, God will give you more than you can handle. He'll bring you into scary and stressful and difficult situations. And there we'll have to learn not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him. On God who raises the dead, 2 Corinthians says. It's through trials and the furnace that God often shapes our character and forms our hearts and burns away any illusions of, of going it on our own. And he forces us to dependence upon himself. And so Peter here, before the council, not handling it on his own, not in his own strength, but under great pressure and scrutiny, relying on the power of God and the Holy Spirit, filling him for this moment. And the same must be true of us. When we're out in the world and we face difficult situations or conversations or things that cause us anxiety or opposition in whatever form, must rely on the Holy Spirit of God filling us and moving us forward with great wisdom, knowing what to say, with hearts full of love for people so they don't grow bitter. Not only that, but, but Peter sees this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. You see that, right? He sees this opposition as an opportunity for the gospel. He could have gotten bitter uh, he, he could have just, I don't know, thrown things at the Sanhedrin. <laughs> he could have been, I'm being wronged here, and, and demand his rights or, or whatever. But he just says, no, you know, this is a chance to preach the gospel. This is an opportunity for the gospel. And they're asking me a question, and so here we go. Know this, verse 10, you and all people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 
to healing in the name of Jesus. And then there's two bold claims about Jesus that Peter makes. Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. It's language from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quoted that same psalm, pointing to himself in his ministry. Now Peter repeats it. Many of us know this, but if you don't, the, the, the cornerstone in the ancient world was the first and most important stone that was placed on the foundation of the building. Other stones were placed in relation to it. It was placed on the corner as a sound, so those two sidewalls were held together by it. It determined the position, the angle of the entire structure. And upon that stone, the whole building would stand. So calling Jesus the cornerstone is saying he is prominent. He is exalted. He's the center and the focus of the whole story. The whole building is dependent upon him. He was rejected, but now he's been exalted and glorified as the risen Savior. He's the hero of the story, the cornerstone of the church. It's all about him. And so he wants the leaders to know that. Hey, they're not going to like hearing that. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone. You rejected him. God raised him from the dead. He's it. And then verse 12. By the way, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. A lot of times we wonder if the Bible is clear enough or hard to understand. Or we say, is it really saying what we think it's saying? And, and certainly there are places in the Bible that are hard to understand. And <laughs> take a strong cup of coffee and like, let's put our heads together and figure this out. Um, but, but, but sometimes it's just right on the surface. The salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other way to be, to be rescued and delivered from the consequences of our sin. There's no other way to be healed. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And here the apostles repeat that. Salvation is found in no one else. Where else can we look for eternal life? Who else has died for our sins? Who else rose from the dead and can give us new life in his name? Who else can rescue us from, from death and judgment and, and hell? The wages of sin is death. And Romans 5.10 says, we were the enemies of God. We were running away from God, wanting nothing to do with him. And yet now we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're saved, not by our works, but through faith in Christ, right? Through turning to Jesus in his name. Through simple faith and trust in him that we are forgiven and made alive and rescued. And so realize this morning there's a God in heaven who loves you and who wants a relationship with you and made a way for you to be reconciled to him, that we were dead in our sin, running the opposite direction, worthy of judgment. God made a way for us to be forgiven. And it's through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. And friends, there's a lot of messages in the world that are going to tell us salvation is found elsewhere. There's a lot of counterfeit gospels out there. 
that you can find life and you can find hope and you can find all that you need in your, in your spouse or in a, a future relationship or in uh, success in your business or, or a large amount in your bank account. Hey, you don't even need a savior. You can just save yourself. You'll clean yourself up. It's fine. We hear these counterfeit gospels. We have to remember that the truth of the one true gospel, salvation is found in no one else. There's no one like him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you, and, and we declare you are the cornerstone. Uh, salvation is found in no one else but you. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. No one comes to the Father but through you, Lord. And sometimes in, in our world today that sounds narrow or that sounds harsh or whatever, we just want to humbly submit to you, to your word, to your ways, and to the truth that you have made known. Lord, you are the only way. And thank you for your great love that you came to save us, that you died for us on the cross. You would have been perfectly just and righteous in leaving us in our sin and going your separate way for eternity, and yet you are so good. You died for us. You rose again. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.